It's Friday, February 22nd, 2019, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is Pennsylvania Legacies. I'm Josh Rollerson. Over the years, Pennsylvania's made a lot of progress toward cleaning up polluted rivers and streams. And as a result, native fish and aquatic wildlife are making a comeback. Of course, many species still face significant threats from other sources of habitat disruption, but at least one of those species, the brook trout, our state fish in Pennsylvania, has the law on its side. The glory of Pennsylvania is that any stream that contains a certain population, healthy population of wild trout, receives increased protections from those development threats. That's why the Pennsylvania chapter of Trout Unlimited is working to gather data needed to classify hundreds of previously unassessed streams as protected habitat. And since 2008, we've surveyed about 800 streams in total in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And we're finding trout at about 40% of the time. So in total, we've raised the amount of trout streams, wild trout streams in Pennsylvania to about 16,000 miles and counting. This episode of Pennsylvania Legacies is all about trout and work being done at both the state and federal levels to protect the health of fishing streams all over the country. We'll hear from Trout Unlimited's Pennsylvania field rep coming up in just a few minutes. But first... The Lands Bill is the product of over 100 pieces of legislation addressing the management and preservation of some of our nation's most precious natural areas. It touches every state, features the input of a wide coalition of our colleagues, and has earned the support of a broad, diverse coalition of many advocates for public lands, economic development, and conservation. That's U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell speaking last week, just minutes before the chamber voted to permanently reauthorize the Land and Water Conservation Fund. LWCF was the centerpiece of a wide-ranging package of conservation legislation previously approved in the House of Representatives late last year. Unfortunately, that happened a little bit too late to clear the Senate before the close of the legislative session. But with Senate approval in 2019, the reintroduced measure is expected to become law this year. That would mean the 54-year-old Land and Water Conservation Fund would no longer need periodic reauthorization by Congress, as it has until now. That would ensure that a critical source of funding for land acquisition, for parks and trails, and many other types of public assets in Pennsylvania and throughout the country will remain in place indefinitely. And obviously, that's great news. We've talked a lot about LWCF on this show over the last six months. We've urged Pennsylvanians to let their representatives know how much the fund matters to them. And it's pretty clear that constituent pressure played a key role in rallying lawmakers from all 50 states in both parties to push for reauthorization. However, that work isn't quite finished. We do still need final passage of the bill in the House, and the job won't be done until that bill finally lands on the president's desk. Until that happens, we're going to keep asking Pennsylvanians to stay involved, stay engaged. If you haven't already, I do hope you will visit the PEC website where you can learn a lot more about the role that LWCF has played in our state going all the way back to the 1960s when it became law. You can check out videos, podcast interviews, articles, and links. And then, here's the important bit, contact your representative. Even if you already have, it's worth doing again. You can learn how and find suggestions for some uh, talking points you might want to hit upon during that conversation, all at peckpa.org slash LWCF. peckpa.org slash LWCF. Look for the link in the show notes for this episode. 
Trout Unlimited is one of the most prominent nationwide organizations dedicated to conservation of freshwater streams, rivers, and fish habitat. They've also been among the most successful at enlisting sportsmen and women in the cause by emphasizing the link between a healthy environment and great fishing opportunities. Chris Wood is TU's president and CEO, and he is our guest on this episode. Chris, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Hello, good morning. I got to say, I'm so excited to have you on the show this week of all weeks since we just got some news, some good news about an issue that's near and dear to, I think, both of our organizations. As we record this, it was uh, just a couple of days ago that we got the news that uh, the U.S. Senate has voted to reauthorize the Land and Water Conservation Fund, something we've been working on, focused on in recent months, and I know you certainly have. Can you talk a little bit about what's in that package of legislation? Because I think it, it includes some other important uh, protections for lands and streams. and Anything else that touches on your work? How does passage of the spill affect uh, issues that TU is focused on? Well, it's, it is a big deal. And you're right. It not only authorizes the Land and Water Conservation Fund, it permanently authorizes it. Um, historically, we've had to go back to Congress episodically to reauthorize the bill. But uh, this permanently reauthorizes it. So it is now, unless Congress specifically overturns the law, it will remain in effect in perpetuity. We had hoped to get permanent funding, so funding that would be guaranteed on an annual basis for the fund, but that was a, a little bit too heavy of a lift for this time. But it's really good news because the Land and Water Conservation Fund is not only critical for acquiring new public lands, public lands that often provide access for hunters and anglers, but it's a really important tool for access. So what happens in in a lot of cases, you've got private lands that, you know, private lands or state lands that may otherwise block access because of trespassing laws to public lands. And part of what we use the Land and Water Conservation Fund to do is to identify those tracts of land that are private lands that are blocking access to public land, and then on a willing seller, willing buyer basis, negotiate with those owners to use the LWCF to acquire those lands, thereby opening up lots of hunting and fishing access. So it's, it's great news for hunters and anglers all across the country. And you're right, this is a really big bill. It, it's a package of bills. It's probably the most significant public lands bill in the past, I'd say, decade or so. It protects iconic rivers such as the North Umpqua, the Rogue, the Chetco, the Elk. It protects headwaters to the Yellowstone in Montana. And it designates, I think it was more than 250 miles of wild and scenic rivers. And so so these are some of our more iconic rivers that are just really important for trout and salmon and, uh, and steelhead. Some of these individual pieces of legislation, like the Frank and Jeannie Moore Wild Steelhead Special Management Area, which is in Oregon on the North Umpqua, really important steelhead fishery. We've been working on that those bills for four or five years. And Congress has become so difficult to get legislation through. What happens is a lot of times these non-controversial, you know, common sense pieces of legislation, they they have to sit on the sideline for a long time until finally, you know, members of Congress are able to come together like Senators Murkowski and Senator Cantwell did and, you know, demonstrate real bipartisan leadership to bundle all these bills up and push them across the finish line. 
And that's what happened here. It certainly did. It's remarkable to me, uh, maybe as much or even more so than the content of the legislation, that there was this uh, overwhelming bipartisan consensus. Maybe it took a little longer uh, coming than, than we would have liked, but but we got there which is a rare moment of bipartisan cooperation, it seems like, in the political moment that we're in. I just want to read a a line from a blog post that you wrote the other day in response to this news uh, that I loved. I'm quoting you now. Like cicadas emerging from the earth after a long slumber, these fits of bipartisanship seem to emerge after years of stalemate, Um, which is great. I'm wondering, are you optimistic about more bipartisan cooperation of this sort, specifically on conservation issues at the federal level? Is this going to be a theme developing or do we have to wait another 17 years for, for something like this to happen again? Well, you know, um, it's it's awkward having your own words quoted back to you. But from that same post, the other thing I noted was that all of these bills shared something in common. They all took a long time to develop. They were almost all developed locally. They had a whole diverse array of interests pushing them forward. And and I think when you take that approach, when you you build these things from the bottom up, from the, the local community level up, and you include both those communities of place and communities of interest in the conversation, and everybody gives a little and everybody gets a little, then they're going to have to get bipartisan support. It should be that these things get done much quicker than they do, but that's the way of the game today. And I think for all of us for whom conservation is a calling or a living, we should take note in how, you know, how long uh, some of these things can take to get done, but the The common feature they all share is this notion of collaborative stewardship, of bringing together disparate parties, engaging in compromise and consensus building. Um, And then finally, you know, we ended up, you end up presenting these to elected leaders and they can't say no, because ultimately they they have to look the people that have pulled these different proposals together in the eye uh, or else they're going to lose their vote. So I do think that this bodes well for the future and I think it's incumbent on all of us who preach and practice conservation to take the lessons from the omnibus bill and and apply it to all of our work. So if we can pivot to talking about another very important matter happening at the federal level right now, and that's possible changes to the clean water rule. Can you talk about that and why it's important to TU? Yeah, this is a really big deal. And it's, it's not just important to TU. It should be important to anglers the really the world over. So for the first 30 years of the Clean Water Act, it applied to perennial streams, that is streams that run all year long, so-called intermittent streams, streams that maybe only run partially uh, through the year, and when the water table drops, their levels will drop, so they might run dry, and then ephemeral streams, which are typically most influenced by rain or snowmelt. And it applied to all those streams, and and it worked just fine, right? Our our waters were made cleaner, they were made more fishable, more swimmable, and that was all called into question in the early 2000s by uh, several Supreme Court cases that called the question on whether the Clean Water Act should just apply to so-called navigable waterways, really big rivers like the Potomac River, which is outside of our office, or whether it also applies to these small so-called intermittent and ephemeral streams, uh, headwater streams. The Obama administration took a run at taking the guidance that the Supreme Court offered. The Supreme Court basically said that the government needs to show that there's a, quote, significant nexus between these headwater streams and navigable waterways for the Clean Water Act to apply. And they did that. They came up with a proposal that underwent significant scientific peer review, and they issued it in 2015. Unfortunately, the Trump administration has proposed 
rescinding that rule, which is in effect right now in about half of the country. It's hung up in court in the other half. And replacing it with a rule that would no longer apply to about 20% of all of the stream miles in the U.S., So what the Trump administration has proposed doing is removing the protections of the Clean Water Act for these so-called ephemeral streams, as well as certain wetlands. So basically, we would lose the protections of the Clean Water Act for about 20% of the stream miles in the U.S., and shockingly, 50%, 5-0% of the wetlands. And so for the, you know, about a million and a half, 1.7 million people who fish in Pennsylvania and spend about half a billion dollars a year on the economy, this is a big deal because the fact is that gravity works cheap and it never takes a day off. These small streams that are found in higher up in the the river systems at higher elevations, they're like the capillaries on the landscape. And their ability to transport nutrients to downstream rivers is vital. Their ability to serve as spawning and rearing habitat at different times of the year for juvenile fish is really important. And their ability to produce the cold, clean water that trout anglers in particular depend on is absolutely vital. And it's going to be absolutely vital that anglers in Pennsylvania make their voices heard. As I mentioned, this is a really big business. And Fishing in Pennsylvania contributes $850 million in economic output, supports over 9,500 jobs, and it's just absolutely vital that uh, Pennsylvania's anglers make their voices heard and let the government know that we want, we want the small streams protected by the Clean Water Act just like we want the big streams protected. When you talk about making sure that anglers' voices are heard in this debate, I think people know you and Trout Unlimited as as one of maybe a handful of organizations that historically have been really successful in mobilizing sportsmen and women to advocate for these kinds of issues. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about your approach to that. How do you engage anglers specifically on water conservation? Are they coming from a fundamentally different place from others within the sort of environmental coalition? Or how do you think about that? It's a great question, and I'll give you just a little bit of history that I think speaks to how and why we operate the way we do at Trout Unlimited. So many more years ago than than I'm willing to admit, way back at the turn of the century (laughs) in uh, in 2001, I worked for the U.S. Forest Service, and we were involved in a very complex and ultimately controversial rulemaking to protect about 60 million acres of public land, land that you and I own as a birthright and all of us own as a birthright, uh, from, from road construction and, and, and other forms of development. And this was called the Roadless Area Conservation Rule. And it's still in effect today. It protects about 58.5 million acres of national forests that are wilderness quality lands. Anyway, the reason I mention this is that during that time, One of my jobs was to take the meetings that the chief of the Forest Service, the guy who runs the agency, didn't want to take. And and that was about 90% of the meetings. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, as you could imagine, when we made this proposal, man, the regulated community came out of the woodwork. The timber interest, the oil and gas interest, the coal interest, they were all demanding meetings and making their voices heard. And on the other side, you know, the environmental community was upset that we weren't going far enough, right? But... The one constituency that I never had a single meeting request from was the hunting and angling community. And Mm -hmm. you can make an argument that the roadless rule was more important for hunting and fishing 
than probably anything that had been done in the previous 50 years. And yet we never heard from that constituency. And one of the reasons that I was really excited to come to Trout Unlimited was to try to create an analog to the environmental community with sportsmen and women. Part of the reason that their voices had had fallen silent is I think they were taken for granted by one political party and ignored by the other. And so what we try to do at TU is to take the politics completely out of the equation and just help sportsmen and women to understand how healthy habitat, how clean water contributes to better hunting and fishing. And, you know, our formula is very simple. We organize, we educate, and then we mobilize sportsmen and women to make their voices heard on the issues that should impact the quality of their hunting and fishing the most. Now, that's a very almost transactional sort of description of why we do our work. And there are clearly many, many sportsmen and women who will get engaged in public processes like this clean water rule because they're worried about, they, they want to pass on a rich legacy, you know, a, a healthier land and water legacy to their kids and their grandkids. But the more effective that we are as an organization at connecting the dots between some of these sometimes abstruse, sometimes complicated policies and regulations to the quality of your hunting and fishing, the more likely we are to see hunters and anglers, you know, stand up and engage in direct action or public processes that they might otherwise not engage in. Yeah. Well, I mean, talking about another important constituency that maybe hasn't been as vocal or as prominent in the past that I think maybe we're starting to see that change is, you know, the business community around outdoor recreation generally. Uh, you mentioned the economic impacts of fishing and, and other outdoor activities in Pennsylvania, which is huge. And certainly that's the case in many other parts of the country. With the LWCF reauthorization, we saw that become a cause for businesses to rally around and organizations representing them. Where does the outdoor industry figure in your sort of configuration of allies and partners? Oh, they're huge allies. You know, this is not a Pennsylvania example, but we recently were involved in a ballot initiative in Montana. And the business community just, they came out of the woodwork to support it. Ultimately, it didn't prevail, but I think things are really changing right now. And and I think a lot of these outdoor recreation-based industries who historically, you know, sort of eschewed politics and stayed out of uh, some of these complex rulemakings, they realize that their bottom line is directly affected by some of these proposals that Congress are taking up or that, you know, these federal agencies like the EPA or the Corps of Engineers are taking up relative to the Clean Water Act. And, you know, I mean, you think about it, the outdoor recreation economy in Pennsylvania is a $28 billion industry. It generates almost 400,000 jobs in the Commonwealth. It's a major economic driver and we play a, a part of that, right? Hunting and fishing is a part of that, but it's really a small part of it. It's, it's people who like to go camping, it's people who like to hike, and it's all the equipment associated with you know, the pursuit of our outdoor passions. And it's been really heartening to see that you know, the outdoor recreation industry has been organizing itself and, and working really effectively to make its voice heard. We've got over... 500 members of what we call the TU business community. And these are people who have a direct 
connection to cold water conservation. They see how their bottom line is directly affected by cold water conservation. And they support TU to not only help us accomplish our mission, but they want to make sure that their voice is heard in some of these big public policy debates. And it's just awesome to see. It's, it's like a sleeping giant that's awakened. Well, as you were saying earlier, that at a certain level, a lot of this is transactional. That, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's, it's not just these sort of high-minded motivations that a lot of people bring to it. Maybe that's you know, fundamentally underlying it. But there are real dollars and cents considerations on the table, especially for a state like Pennsylvania where the outdoor industry is you know, so important. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, I'm all for, you know, I got involved in this work even before I had children. But this idea of, of leaving something better than we found it is deeply moving to me. But maybe not everyone thinks that way. And I think many opponents of conservation over the years have had this sort of transactional argument that that's based almost on fear. It's this notion of mm-hmm. if you protect the environment, you're going to cost jobs. And, right. and we've been defeated many times from doing you know, what I think is the right thing because of that argument. And now to have that turned around on its head and to say by protecting these places, by using the LWCF to secure access to these otherwise blocked lands, by ensuring that the Clean Water Act applies to these small waterways as well as the big waterways, it's not only leaving a richer land legacy for my kids and maybe yours, but it's also contributing to your bottom line. It's improving the quality of the fishing that people are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on in the state of Pennsylvania. This is a different argument, but it's reducing the cost of downstream water filtration costs for local communities. But the more we're able to use economic arguments to our favor, I think the better that we often do. Chris Wood with Trout Unlimited, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's truly been my pleasure. Keep up the good work, and thanks for letting me visit with you. Let's bring it back home now and focus on the condition of Pennsylvania's trout fisheries with Rob Shane. He's Mid-Atlantic Organizer for Trout Unlimited based in Monroe County. Rob, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy, happy to be here and I appreciate everything you guys are doing with this, with this podcast and um, excited to talk to, to the rest of Pennsylvania about what we're working on. Really happy to have you on. Let's talk about what challenges uh, Pennsylvania is facing in terms of uh, your work and trout habitat. What are we up against right now? Well, in Pennsylvania, we're we're very blessed. Um, you know, we're blessed to have eighty six thousand miles of flowing water in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and uh, that's a real treasure. It's it's it, you know, we believe that that's the greatest resource Pennsylvania has to offer. We're lucky as well that a lot of that water contains wild trout, specifically Pennsylvania state fish, the brook trout, the eastern brook trout. Uh, so we, you know, we spend a lot of time in the summers and in the, in the winters in search of these fish. You know, I, I'm before I am a TU employee, I'm also a, a fly fisherman and an avid angler. So knowing that I can walk into my backyard uh, and find wild trout, you know, I live in the Poconos and we're, we're fortunate enough to have, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of miles of wild trout streams. But within an hour's drive of me, I can, I'll never be able to fish all the streams. So we're very fortunate in that. Pennsylvania, though, on the other hand, you know, is rich in other natural resources, be it coal, timber, more recently, natural gas. So there are threats, you know, development threats that face a lot of our trout streams. I'd say the biggest, the biggest cause for loss of these wild trout in the last hundred years or so is certainly loss of habitat. So we've been working hard, not just restoring those streams, but also doing our best to kind of protect them on the front end, be it through 
localized campaigns or, or at the state level through advocacy and helping sculpt policy around these clean streams that helps protect those trout as well. I would think a big part of that sort of preventative approach would be having pretty good information about exactly what problems might need to be addressed at a, at a local level. And I know that's something that you all have been working on in terms of just gathering data. Absolutely. And we owe a lot of that to our 14,000 members in Pennsylvania. We're, we're the biggest conglomerate of TU volunteers in the entire country. We've got 14,000 members spread out in 49 different chapters. So we're fortunate enough to have really a small army on the ground that kind of keeps us in tune with what's going on uh, locally. You know, nobody knows their streams better than the people who are on them every single day. Uh, And if you ask anglers where they fish, they may not tell you. But if there's a matter of protecting a stream, you know, they'll be the first ones to see it and the first ones to kind of sound the alarm. So what is your army telling you lately? What uh, what are you finding out about the state of Pennsylvania stream health? Well, it, it's actually good. Reports are good. People are catching a lot of fish. They're seeing a lot of improvements in streams. If you'd asked us 20 or 30 years ago, a lot of those reports may not have been so, so positive. You'd have heard a lot about orange acid mine runoff coming through streams, you know, streams that are just totally devoid of life and Don't get me wrong, we we still have some of that. And, you know, we're facing newer threats these days with just development and pipelines and things like that. But in general, that core group, our core group of volunteers have been putting in the time, putting in the hours. We call it rolling rocks and and sticking logs, but, you know, really working hard on the ground to, to improve that trout habitat. You know, we have a mantra to you that if you take care of the fish, the fishing will take care of itself. But going beyond the rolling rocks and sticking logs, you guys are also involved with a really interesting citizen science kind of initiative to help gather scientific data, specifically about the many streams and waterways across Pennsylvania for which we really we don't really know anything. They haven't been scientifically studied or assessed, and you guys are trying to close that gap. How did this initiative come about, and what have you learned? Well, you know, the Unassessed Waters Initiative has been something that TU's been a part of since 2011 uh, in, in coordination with the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. The Fish and Boat kind of woke up one day and said, uh, you know, we're not quite sure what we've got. And we know we need to protect these streams from, from fracking and pipelines and other development. But we can't really do that until we have a, have a good inventory of what's out there. So every summer since 2011, TU has had field crews in and about Pennsylvania streams surveying with electroshocking backpacks looking for wild trout. The glory of Pennsylvania is that any stream that contains a certain population, healthy population of wild trout, receives increased protections from those development threats. So we break it down into there's two categories that we're shooting for when we're out in the field. There is a wild trout stream protection, which would be the second tier, and then a class A wild trout stream, which is the best of the best. Um, And these protections are given based on two factors, the first being total biomass, so the total amount of fish, wild fish in that stream section. And the second is finding multiple year classes of fish which proves that those fish are actually reproducing naturally within that stream, meaning that they don't need the assistance of Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission or private co-op hatcheries to stock trout to maintain a fishable population. And that is, that's a staff-led effort. We don't have volunteers in the streams with us, but after we receive the data from those surveys, those go up to the Fish and Boat Commission, they put them on a list, and every quarter before the Fish and Boat Commission meets, 
they put out a list of 99 wild trout streams, up to 99 wild trout streams, and anywhere between 10 to 30 Class A trout streams for approval. And that's where the public and and our grassroots army kind of comes in because those lists are now open for public comment. And that's where we really find our strength from our volunteers. We've been able to garner about 800 public comments in support of those stream upgrades in 2018. In fact, this past quarter in January, they had their meeting and our volunteers submitted uh, over 175 public comments in support of upgrades for both the Class A and the Wild Trout Stream lists to get upgraded. And that was one of the best best returns we know of. And it's proven that there's an interest in this, that Pennsylvania anglers and conservationists do care about their streams. They care about the quality of their streams and they care about the health of their streams, and they want to see these streams protected. And since 2008, we've surveyed about 800 streams in total in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and we're finding trout at about 40% of the time. And that's just to you. There are other partners and the Fish and Boat Commission going out and doing this work as well. So in total, we've raised the amount of trout streams, wild trout streams in Pennsylvania to about 16,000 miles uh, hmm. to date and counting. We, you know, our field crew is gearing up right now, although it's a balmy 32 degrees outside. You know, we've got our field crew out in Lockhaven getting ready, mapping out their, their plans for the summer of 2019 as we speak. So we're going to be consistently adding more and more stream sections to these protected lists. Since it is budget season now in Harrisburg, and we've heard the governor's vision for things like agency funding for DCNR and DEP and so on, there is this perennial discussion about the future of the Growing Greener program. What are you looking to state government to provide in in the way of leadership to support all this economic activity, to support environmental health and the quality of life that we gain from access to, to great fishing streams? You know, Trout Unlimited has worked hard with our partners as part of the Growing Greener Coalition and as greater environmental groups and conservation groups around the state to ensure the future of that program. We rely on it for a lot of funding for projects that we do across the state, be it, you know, restoring a stream or or opening access to another stream for the general public to get out and enjoy, enjoy those streams and, and, it's a little frustrating to see the attempts of Governor Wolf to kind of raid the funding for those programs, essentially to keep the lights on at the agencies. We'd much rather see, you know, some innovative and creative ways to continue to fund these programs beyond their current levels and also, you know, fund our agencies to, to the full extent that we're able to. So, you know, it's, it's our hope that when the budget does come out that we'll see not only full funding for the agencies but also creative ways to keep these programs growing into the future. I have to ask, do you have any favorite uh, spots that you can recommend or is that all top secret? <laughs> uh, well, so the good thing is that if you visit the Fish and Boat Commission's website, they actually have a map that will take you to every Class A and wild trout stream in the Commonwealth of all Pennsylvania. Right. So certainly within those streams, there are secret places that I've been led by blindfold uh, <laughs> wow. by some friends of mine that I couldn't even get back to. But, you know, we're blessed to have some nationally recognized fisheries. When you think of of Penn's Creek, I mentioned before, I would put Penn's Creek and the upper Delaware system on par with any of the any of the trout streams you would find anywhere in Montana or Idaho or Wyoming or Oregon or Washington. I mean, the quality of fishing, uh, the quality of fish, the bugs, the hatches. And, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, too, like that's not an accident. Good fishing comes from having protected waters and protected wetlands and good riparian buffers and, and clean streams. It's not an accident to have those booming wild trout fisheries. 
And if anybody wants to ever go fishing, I'd be happy to take you out. Find me. I live in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. You can look me up, and I'd be happy to spend a day on the water with you. Rob Shane, Mid-Atlantic Organizer for Trout Unlimited, to use boots on the ground here in Pennsylvania. Thanks so much for being on the show. I appreciate you guys having me. That's all for this time. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Pennsylvania Legacies. You can learn all about Trout Unlimited and their work in Pennsylvania and across the country, how you can get involved in your community by visiting TU, Trout Unlimited, TU.org. And, of course, the PEC website is PECPA.org, where you can read up on the Land and Water Conservation Fund, its rich history in our state, in our country, and what you can do to make sure it stays in effect for the next generation. It's at PECPA.org slash LWCF. Our back catalog is on the website as well. You can listen to all the past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies going back to 2016 at peckpa.org slash audio. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Player FM, or your podcast player of choice. Follow Peck on Twitter at P-E-C-P-A and like us on Facebook. And tune in again in another couple of weeks for the next episode. We release new ones every other Friday, again on peckpa.org and all the aforementioned platforms. Hope you'll join us for the next one. In the meantime, thanks for your feedback on the show, your ratings and reviews on all of those podcast platforms make a huge difference, as does your input when you email Legacies at PECPA.org. That's legacies at PECPA.org. If you or someone you know would make a good guest on this program, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out one more time at legacies at PECPA.org. Until next time, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Wallerson. Thanks for listening.